welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 111 for Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. One of my favorite games of the past few years, as is true for many people, I suspect, is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I saw a piece of art online that reminded me not only of this game, but also of all the things I loved as a kid, just having a day off, sitting at home, playing Nintendo with my friends. And this art showcased some characters that look very similar to characters from Breath of the Wild playing a Zelda-like game. I, I lost track of this art for a while there. I couldn't remember where I saw it or where to get it until my friend Sabriel recently retweeted the artist. And this tweet had not only that picture I've been looking for, but four other works of art that were so completely diverse, my mind was blown that they were all from the same artist. And so I'm very excited today to be speaking with that artist, Ivy Dollimore. Hello, Ivy. Hello. Thank you for having me. I was so excited to find your Twitter account, Ivy Alive, your website, ivyalive.com, and then to reach out to you and to have you on the show. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm flattered. And thank you for the lovely introduction. My pleasure. So tell me, how long have you been working as an artist? Well, I've been doing art my whole life, really, but um, deciding to take it as a career path has been sort of a venture of the last two years, give or take. What were you doing before then? Um, I was just working retail jobs, honestly, which I was kind of content to do for quite a while. I sort of grew up thinking that I would not be an artist, even though I loved it. I didn't really want to make it like my career so I was working just like basic retail jobs, sort of with the naive mindset that I could have a day job and like have a good living, which sort of just isn't the case in our current economy. Being sort of miserable there, eventually I got to the point where I was like, no, I really need to do what I'm passionate about. And that's definitely illustration. Yeah, retail can be very difficult work. I've been there myself, Walden Books, GameStop, Blockbuster. <laughs> Me too. My first job was GameStop. Oh, no, not another GameStop alumna. We've had so many on this show. <laughs> that that figures, really. Oh, so you were selling those power-up rewards cards and magazine subscriptions and pre-ordering games? Uh, I was trying to, and that's part of the reason I no longer work there. <laughs> oh, quotas are the worst. Man. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but it can be very rewarding to hang out with other people who enjoy games as much as you do and to see the satisfaction in somebody's face when you get them that game they've been waiting for. That that can be fun. Yeah, I've made friends there that definitely been my longest term like work friends. I still talk to them all the time. Oh, that's awesome. You said that you didn't want to make art your living. Was it that you didn't want to or that you didn't think you could? I think it was that I really didn't want to. Like the pressure of having to create things under the intention of selling them is a very different thing than just when it's your hobby and you love it. Um, not that I don't love doing it for a job too, but I, my mindset has definitely changed from that kind of early mindset where it's like, I can do whatever I want. Now my drawing time is work time. Does that make it less enjoyable? I think it just makes it different. Um, like there are times where I do miss kind of the real creative outlet, but I think maybe that's just part of growing up too for me. I don't know. I'm very Capricornian. I don't know <laughs> if you believe in that, but like I, I do because I feel very much like I'm this kind of earth energy, very balanced in my career intentions. So I don't know. Do you still find time to do art just for fun or is it all commercial now? It's a little bit of both. Like even the things that I do that are on my own time or hour usually come with sort of the intention of like, can I post this on Instagram later or does this benefit me in some other way? Like it's always somehow tied to the public. I don't really make stuff that doesn't get shared because the algorithm favors so much this intense schedule of sharing that you kind of need to produce what you can share, or at least in my stage of my career. Do you set yourself quotas? Like, I mean, certainly there are deadlines for commissions, but do you tell yourself, I need to produce this much art on this frequent a basis or else my numbers will plummet? Yeah, in a way. Um, well, I just started Patreon this last year, like late last year. 
Um, and that pretty much gets me on a schedule where I'm <laughs> making a sticker sheet a month and an, an individual sticker design and a print every month, like a full size painted print. And then I do that on top of commissions. So yes, that pretty much takes up all of my time. I mean, we've talked on this podcast with Twitch streamers and how relentless the need is to produce content. I'll be honest, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me that that would apply just as equally to other artists and other media in the gaming industry as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, just like anything where you're sort of marketing your own brand and self to get views, you need to sort of favor the algorithm. And since you mentioned marketing your brand, how would you describe your brand? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think I'm still figuring it out because I feel sort of new to really focusing on what my own content is. Like I was focusing a lot on fan art, like you've seen, I guess that's what drew you into me. And I think that was more of my comfort zone, but I've had some issues with, you know, conventions aren't open right now, which tends to be a better, safer market. And when you're selling online, you're a lot more vulnerable to big DMCAs and companies coming and taking down your stuff and then your income is just gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when I've been to various conventions, sure, there's a lot of fan art there from Chrono Trigger, Legend of Zelda, Street Fighter. But you know, it, it's easy to sell that to an individual who's walking past your booth when you're marketing it to the internet. You don't know who's going to see it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have... <laughs> I've lost a lot of income because I'll have a print that's a popular design and then it'll get taken down by the, you know, IP owner, which is certainly in their right. And I'm not going to fight that, but that's why I, I'm shifting into having to discover like what my real brand is kind of a very new thing. Only in the last six months or something, have I really been producing prints that are just my original content. So I'm not really sure if I have an answer for you yet. No, you don't have to. That's something that you'll develop over time. And in the meantime, it's fun to just explore and find out what's inside of you that wants to come out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have a lot of visions inside me that I like, but they're all very varied. <laughs> it's kind of funny because this is one of the things that you put on, you know, sort of the prep um, <laughs> PDF that I got that was... You know, I would never guess your portfolio is the work of just one person. How do you describe your various styles? This is one of the questions. And I, I love having this big variation in the content that I make. And I feel like that is kind of part of my style and my brand that I have so many different niches that I kind of all want to put one of my fingers in. <laughs> and what is it that would, you would say results in such diverse art? Are you using different tools to create this art? Are you drawing on different inspirations or drawing in different genres? I think it's mostly the like process that it takes to get somewhere. Like I'll have a certain thing that I want to focus on in each piece. Like in this one, I care about the colors or the pose or the perspective or whatever. So depending on what my priority is, that kind of affects the method I take to get there. And it comes out in all kinds of different ways where they look more comic-y or like a painting, just depending on kind of what steps I'm taking. If I'm using line art or if I'm just going for like a sketchy painting, it all really looks quite different in the end. Do you have some favorite pieces that you've produced? Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're all really kind of different, I think. But I really like this one. It's Warm Witch. And it's like this witch in a window and the colors are really warm. And it just really reminds me of like autumns <laughs> and puzzles. <laughs> I love doing puzzles. So I like art that looks like puzzle art. Oh yeah. I'm looking at warm witch now, how she's just sitting back drinking, reading a book. It looks very cozy. <laughs> yeah. That's, I like to create art that I want somebody to look at and go like, I see myself in this or I want to be this person. Have you considered adding puzzles to your online shop? I have. Um, they're pretty expensive to produce. I bought one for myself for my birthday this year to just kind of test out what it would be like. Because just to find a manufacturer, you have to sort of test how the product is going to be. Um, but it was like 50 bucks for one puzzle. So that, um, 
I'm not quite ready to buy in a bulk big enough to get that cost down that it would be effective. Yeah, the margin on that is not going to be very profitable. Yeah, you got to sell a lot of puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So what tools do you use for your art? I use just a classical like Wacom. Uh, I think this is an Intuos Pro and Photoshop. So I, I'm still doing that. I know a lot of people do like the drawing on the screen thing, like with their fancy Centex, because now you can get a really cheap screen tablet through like XP pen for like way cheaper than it used to be. Uh, but I don't have one of those. <laughs> I just have like a an old style where you're like looking at the screen and drawing down below. I like it because I feel like your posture is better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you would switch to that fancier setup if you could? I don't think I would. I actually really like the the this format. I don't know why. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. You mentioned how you sell stickers and you were looking at puzzles. Uh, what are some of the more popular things that you sell in your online store? Hmm. Well, definitely fan art prints are a big seller, but so are buttons. Surprisingly, my biggest Etsy seller is um, like my Haikyuu uh, pin back buttons, which I, I make in house. Like I have a button press. Uh, that's kind of cool. So yeah, surprisingly, those sell quite a bit. I sort of thought they were going out of fashion, but apparently people still like them. That's cool. Yeah. And, and when you say fan art, you mean art inspired by other media? Yeah. Like existing IPs, essentially. Got it. Because as you were discussing, you've been moving more and more into OCs or original characters in the last six months. I presume that's becoming a larger part of your portfolio. Is it also becoming a larger part of your sales, if I may ask? Yeah, I mean, it's getting there. And I'm still sort of experimenting on what people really want. Like, for example, I bought some uh, like wooden pins this uh, this last year. And I've made some earrings that are like not even drawings. They're like graphic design more like I would categorize them as that. And like those have sold okay. And the pin back buttons are like not so much that are the original. So I'm still sort of figuring out what people actually want. Like I've also gotten some acrylic charms and I've barely sold any of them. So it's like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. But some things do work and usually they cover the failures. And so it all balances out. When you get an order, do you immediately like drop everything and rush to the post office? Or do you have like order ship on Monday? That's my shipping day. <laughs> I definitely have a shipping day or I would just go crazy. Um, I usually do two runs a week and it just kind of depends on how many orders I get. Like once I get about 15 orders, that's usually like, oh, I better, <laughs> I gotta better pack some orders. No, I think that is very smart. I have an online store as well. And whenever I get an order... I tend to try to get it out within 24 hours rather than wait until they accumulate. Because, really? Yeah, I, it's not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> but the people at the post office know me very well by now. That's kind of sweet. Do you get like, I mean, you don't even have to answer this, but like how many orders do you get a week to the point that sometimes I get like overwhelmed by like the fact that a whole day will be taken up by packing? and going so i don't know maybe the one at once at a time is a better method well similar to you my products come in a variety of media so if they are ordering uh, a hardcover book for example i actually have a, a distributor elsewhere and i'll forward that order to him and he mails it for me mm -hmm. uh, if they're ordering a physical cd a compact disc i have an online uh, distributor where i upload the disc image and they burn it and mail it but if they're ordering pretty much anything else in the online store, then that's something I have in stock and I just toss it in an envelope. It doesn't have to be padded and I mail it off. So the things that I actually mail are maybe only one or two orders a week. Mm -hmm. I feel like when it's a smaller quantity like that, it's easier to just kind of get it over with <laughs> or something. That's true. I mean, if I was ship if i was getting an order a day then i would probably group them together like you do i i wish i was getting as many orders as you do <laughs> <laughs> i i wish for that for you well thank you someday yes and you also do commissions right yeah i do i just closed them actually because i had this post go viral and i got like four inquiries that i took all of so <laughs> i'm kind of overwhelmed right now but but yes i do take commissions 
when you say you had a post go viral, you mean it was a tweet? Yeah, it was a tweet, which is surprising to me because mostly when I've had bigger engagements, it has not been on Twitter historically. Uh, but yeah, I had my last Patreon like print of the month design was very popular. It got like 2 million uh, impressions, I think they call it. Wow. That was crazy. <laughs> when you say a lot of your traffic doesn't necessarily come from Twitter, where does it come from? Uh, it really is varied. I try to diversify because you just never know what's going to pop off where. Uh, Instagram is a big one where I can have a post kind of randomly blow up. And TikTok does that too. I've noticed that you have a voluminous social media presence, uh, as you mentioned. Patreon, <laughs> Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, Pinterest. I mean, most... I have done some work historically in social media, and they usually say, pick one or two places to focus your output. And mm -hmm. if you just squat on all the others and they're empty, that's going to look worse than not having a presence at all. You do neither of these things. You are on all these services, and they're all very active. So <laughs> how, how, how do you find time to do all that? Uh I mean, I think I could do better, actually. I mean, it, it sort of comes and goes in waves. Like, I will try a certain website to focus on for a certain amount of time and sort of see if it's time yet, in a way. Um, like Pinterest, for example. Yeah, I, I did it for probably like three months, but right now I'm not doing it. <laughs> and I might go back to it in a bit, but it just sort of varies. It was like, ah, oh, this isn't getting the traction to sort of justify the time. So I'm going to move on. But I think that like experimenting and trying to see like what can pick up some traction is good. Like it's usually sort of a steady climb to the top instead of like a sudden burst. So consistency uh -huh. is key. Uh, I use a lot of scheduling services for like whatever I need. Um, like Facebook creator studio is one that you can like schedule your Instagram and Facebook posts. So I just do that like one day a week and then I don't have to worry about it. Are there any third-party tools you use like Hootsuite or CoSchedule or anything? I think that Creator Studio does pretty much that as far as Instagram and Facebook goes. Twitter is sort of the, it's my favorite one. So it's easier for me to just like be on it and talk bullshit over there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just like to talk to people on Twitter. It's the most personable one in my opinion. Yeah, me too. I find a lot of the other media are one-to-many, and Twitter is that as well, but it has more opportunity for one-to-one -one interaction as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've made friends more on Twitter than, like, Instagram seems so just like, um, yeah, it feels like I'm talking to my fans there, whereas Twitter feels more like I'm talking to my friends and, like, coworkers. <laughs> that makes sense. It does. Instagram feels to me like uh, a Facebook fan page, like if you were a celebrity. You know, and celebrities, as we think of them, don't have friends. They have fans. Yeah, definitely. So you said it's a matter of throwing stuff out there and see what works. What have you found works on social media? Hmm. I think that I can predict better what post is might blow up a little bit more clearly. I mean, it's always sort of a gamble. Sometimes things flop or succeed and I'm like, what? But <laughs> I think just kind of getting your bearings as far as like what works is really advantageous. But it's kind of weird because it's like, I don't really know what benefit it really does. I sort of stand by just like, I want to make good work and keep improving just the content. And then people will eventually see or notice and I'll just kind of work out. <laughs> so content is king, but a lot of that content doubles as marketing as well, because you can have great art that never finds an audience because people don't know about it. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I take time to try and learn the marketing side, but I'm just not sure if I consistently like have any amazing tips <laughs> that I can share. <laughs> it's all very just like getting to know each platform because each one sort of has its own quirks about like what, what it's good for. And I'm sure that even varies between like who you are and what you post there. Like some of the advice I've gotten for Instagram, for example, like I feel like no way that would never work for me. I don't know. <laughs> what sort of advice do you think would not work for you? Well, people, for example, tell you to like write these long content 
things like in the descriptions of your pictures and stuff like that. They're like, share your life or whatever. And I'm like, I feel like nobody reads that on Instagram. I would rather put that on like Twitter or YouTube or just talk about it on Twitch or whatever. I mean, I don't know, but clearly somebody's reading it for these other people. So I don't know. Yeah, I wonder about that myself. There's another service where I uploaded some photos and I wrote captions for each one. And then I realized the captions only show up in desktop view. If you're flipping through it on your mobile device, the captions never show up. And of course, that's where most of the traffic is nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why even bother? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't know. There's just, it's a mystery to me. I don't understand. I'm trying to, but it's hard. Well, let's take a look at the three video platforms you're on, YouTube, Twitch, and TikTok. How do you use each of those different from each other? Or are you just putting the same content on all of them? They're definitely different. I mean, Twitch is the one that I feel like I've been doing that kind of content for the longest. Um, Because I've been doing, I think it was like livestream.com back in the day. or And there was like Picto Art too. I was never on that one though. But I've been doing live streams since I was probably like 13, <laughs> like doing my silly anime art. I was like really into it. I don't know. That That's just like a casual kind of place. Usually just my friends come and some of, well, friends to be like people that are really interested in just how I talk or like who I really am. So I like that. But definitely the audience is much smaller because it's such a casual setting you know i'm i'm not exactly a comedian entertainer like to the max i mean i got my (laughs) i got my skills but (laughs) i'm not like you know a top twitch streamer for sure and then youtube i'm really trying to learn um and i've made quite a few videos now but i feel like it's a really different it's way more time consuming than any of the other ones. Let me put it that way. Like I really have to go out of my way to plan a video for YouTube. It feels the most permanent. It feels the most like somehow important. (laughs) Whereas TikTok, you can really throw kind of anything at it and it's just like gone in a flash. It doesn't matter. So are these live streams of you creating art? Are you vlogging? Are you just pimping your product? What what do you got going on? Mostly I'm doing live art, but sometimes I'll try and switch it up and do something else. Like I've packed orders on stream. I recently got like a miniature like house model room thing. I don't know what you call it. It's like a mini room that you build. So I was doing that on stream, uh, but most of it is just art. Yeah, me drawing. And on YouTube, you recently started vlogging, which you described as you being very vulnerable. Can you talk a bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Part of it is sort of that you are in a space with a bunch of other people that have been doing it for way longer than you with a whole lot more money and experience. You want to get to that level of polish, but the reality is that you're just not going to be there right out of the gate. So does that mean that you stop creating it? No, you should just make whatever you're at, like whatever level you're at. But sometimes seeing that really polished product like next to your sort of inexperienced wobbly cult legs of a vlog is hard to see. Um, but like I said, I still want to like make stuff that isn't perfect. That is sort of ugly that I know will, you know, become polished if I work at it. So I don't want to like stop doing it because it's a deterrent or anything, but sort of really seeing yourself on camera, like the quirks of your voice and speech patterns and really like facing that is kind of cringe <laughs> at times. But the same taste you have that allows you to know what's good and what's not is exactly what allows you to be a great artist. I mean, there are people who put terrible art up there and they don't know it's terrible. That's true. But I think that every kind of media is very unique. Like, yeah, I'm a good illustrator, but do I think of myself as a great graphic designer, for example? Not particularly. A lot of the things I look at, I'm like, is this anything? Is this good? And I sort of feel the same way about what I record and how I edit content. It's like, I don't know, I'm learning. It's sort of just like the social media thing. 
do I think that this post will blow up? Yeah, maybe, but then it flops or whatever. And you slowly learn like, ah, this is the ticket. Yep. And you don't know unless you try. Yeah, exactly. I had some YouTube successes about a decade ago when the market was much smaller. And then other people came in with equal or more talent, equal or more budgets. Mm -hmm. And their standards were higher because they could afford to meet them. And my standards became so high that I couldn't meet them. So I just kind of stopped making videos because I'm like, well, if I can't be that great, what's the point? And (laughs) I I wish I hadn't done that to myself because I was having fun. Yeah, I think that's a big downside of sort of being a creative anything in this world that's very like monetarily based it's kind of like ah, if this isn't going to be worth anything like what's the point but you can stop yourself from actually getting to a good spot by like just bailing too early (laughs) plus i feel like i don't know i'm sure you feel the same way that some of the content you consume is like not even the polished nice stuff it's like (laughs) just the kind of early beginnings and you love it you just like love the person that's making it or it's funny or there's some kind of charm it's true it's kind of like when starting a podcast the advice i often read and then share is people will come back if your audio quality isn't great in your first episode so you can start with a cheap mic and then upgrade later Mm -hmm. they won't come back if your first episode's content isn't good though interesting yeah you know, as long as you are doing your best and you're making something that you think is of value, it doesn't matter what your budget is. If people like you and what you have to say, you'll figure out how to make it better. Yeah, definitely. And even if the content isn't good at first, like it gives you time to work at making it better. Right. Right. Because we all need to practice. And at the same time, though, the fact that I'm not making YouTube videos anymore allows me to do the things I was doing not for commercial consumption. You were talking about how a lot of your art is for consumption. Mm -hmm. By not putting it online, I have a little bit more flexibility now in what I do. Yeah, that's true as well. It's good to give yourself the space to sort of create for your own person, which is probably why making stuff for YouTube is vulnerable for me because I make it with the intention to be put out, but it's probably something that I could keep to myself and like... (laughs) I wouldn't be embarrassed about it. So like putting it out there is the part that's vulnerable, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays don't see the value in doing something unless they share it. Like if you're going to go on a vacation, you better post some photos to Insta or to Twitter to prove that you were there. Otherwise, what's the point of having gone there? I'm definitely guilty of that. (laughs) I don't think you're alone in that respect. (laughs) I, I think it's pretty natural nowadays. For better or for worse, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. On the subject of video, you were recently very excited on Twitter when you had a new camera delivered. What are you using that for in your work? Right. So that is my vlogging camera, and it's Uh definitely the most expensive camera I've ever bought. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that whole thing was probably like 850 bucks. So that was a big drop for me. It's like, dang, my phone doesn't even cost that much. (laughs) But yeah, um, it's really cool. I, I mean, it's what most vloggers use nowadays, but I like that it's so compact I don't know. It's it's a Sony ZV-1. It's cool. Nice. And what does it do that your phone doesn't? Well, one of the things that's really good is that I live in the basement of my parents' house. Very trendy. (laughs) (laughs) And I only have one window in here and it's kind of underneath the deck. So what I'm basically saying is that my workspace has horrible lighting. (laughs) So this camera has a bigger, I think it's like the aperture lens. I don't really know cameras. I'm sorry. But basically it takes in more light through the lens, which is really helpful for me because my room is very dark. (laughs) I'm trying to combat that in the best way possible. So you're using this camera for your Twitch and your TikTok and your YouTube. Yeah, pretty much. YouTube mainly. I wasn't sure if you were the sort of artist who goes around outside photographing things and then using that as inspiration for your illustrations later. I'm not really, but I think it's cool that people like share the world around them. My sister is actually also an illustrator. She's um, Kate Dollimore. Uh, She does like all these uh, Audubon uh, watercolor illustrations. 
and she's also really into like photographing the birds and stuff like that. So I think it's just so cute because people love her Instagram, not only for the art, but also her photography of the birds that she later paints. That's really cool. I mean, birds are pretty neat. You got to admit. Yeah, I mean, I I like them. I can sometimes be overwhelmed by having like two family members just talking about birds for a solid week, but <laughs> it's it's cool. Two family members, you and your sister? My mom and my sister. Oh, she's a birdie as well? Well, it's like she'll give in to Kate's bird obsession. <laughs> it's like at least <laughs> they can talk about it. I don't know enough about birds to really partake. I mean, I think they're cute and pretty, but they'll be like, oh, that call is the you know, of Western North Carolina chickadee. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad for you. I hope they listen to this podcast. (laughs) Now I can never tell them where to listen to it. (laughs) Fantastic. So let's talk actually a little bit about your family and also your education, which is one of the things you describe on your website as being a lifelong unschooler, which was A word I think I'd heard in passing, but was not very familiar with. So I did some research before this podcast and learned how it's a subset of homeschooling. But beyond that, I'll let you put it in your own words. What is unschooling? It's basically um, without curriculum, really. You're like not really assigned much that you have to learn in a day. You don't have tests. You don't have classes. Um, You really get to be a self-led learner and choose what to do with your day entirely, which is probably a crazy concept to (laughs) to some people. Uh, But yeah, I definitely think that's been a hugely shaping part of my whole family. I mean, I'm I'm one of three sisters, and we've all been unschooled for the good majority of our life. And it's a pretty cool thing. (laughs) When you say the majority, does that mean you started off in traditional schooling, and they were like, nope, this isn't working, you're out? That happened with my older sisters. So I'm the true baby. So that is kind of what happened, you know, in the past. My two sisters were in public school and the eldest one is just kind of a genius a little bit. This is what I've heard, at least. She was way ahead from everybody else and they just didn't know what to do with her, essentially. And she was like miserable because she was so bored and like not, I don't know, just engaged with the curriculum. So my mom kind of took it upon herself and she has a teaching degree. So she pulled them out and homeschooled them. And I think eventually that became unschooling. I'm not really sure at what point like the true unschooling really happened, but um, it's cool. And it was also in a time um, in the like early nineties where that wasn't legal or you know, it was risky to be a homeschooler in Florida at that time because there really wasn't a groundwork government wise to like really facilitate that. But it seems to have worked for your older sisters. So when you came along, they were like, let's just get it right on the first try and let's start with unschooling here. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've never been to a public school. Just uh, I went to like a Sudbury sort of weekend school for a little bit and Sudbury's a very similar concept kind of to unschooling. It's like there are classes offered, but they're always optional and you kind of still get to focus on self-led learning. But yeah, besides that, I've pretty much been free to kind of do whatever I wanted, which is mostly art and video games as a kid. (laughs) So does that mean there were no limits? You could just play as many video games as you wanted. There were like definitely hours set that, you know, you kind of had to get off of the computer or the PlayStation or whatever it was. Like, you couldn't just stare at the screen the whole day. I think there's a point where mom was like, okay, go read a book or something or play outside. But we also, so we lived in Central Florida on, I'm not really sure how many acres we had, maybe three or four, roughly. So we definitely had land to go and like play in the woods and just kind of be outdoors children as well. So that was a big advantage of where we lived. And those hours spent playing video games, was that part of your education or was it a distraction from your education? I definitely think it was part of it. I mean, I was playing (laughs) Fly for Fun was one of my first like obsessions. I don't know if anybody knows what that game is. It was like, um, like a chibi style MMO. It was a free MMO. Um, I was obsessed with it. 
but I was probably like 14 or something when I started playing private servers and I was actually getting paid to do icon work and promotional artwork for private servers, like not terrible money for being 15. Sure. So I would definitely consider that like a good step in, you know, education. Like, yeah, I'm not going to say that all of those hours were like, wonderfully packed with nutritional value but, <laughs> but they were fun and that was important and clearly i i think i turned out okay so <laughs> i'm not sweating it no so far so good i would say yeah exactly when i was talking to some friends to say that i was going to be interviewing somebody who's been unschooled their main question was how do you learn what the rest of us learned as so like basic things in grade school that we would not maybe have naturally encountered like the multiplications table. Right. You know, like if you're playing a video game, you may learn like, Oh, when I do this damage, they lose this many hit points, but what's nine times 12. So (laughs) how, how do you incorporate that into an unschooling education? Right. I think I did have math sheets that I was sort of supposed to do sometime in a day. So there was like some level of like, you got to do, something. But really, it was very limited. It was probably, I probably pretty much stopped at learning, you know, multiplication and division. So I've never touched algebra or what's the other one? Calculus. Yeah, yeah, I don't even know what it is. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Of course, you know, if you went to school, you probably did. But most people that learned that probably don't use it on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm lacking in anything as long as I know, yeah, like multiplication, that's important. But like, honestly, though, you you do learn that kind of stuff sort of naturally through like playing Yahtzee, for example. We played so much Yahtzee as a kid. It was actually great math practice. Like, I'm never going to forget what six times four is (laughs) anymore. So... I don't know. Um, There's some level of, I guess, standardized learning, but it didn't have the same structure as what you would call like a typical school curriculum. It was really those books that you just got from Staples that were like English and math. And so I did those up until, I don't even know, maybe like fourth grade, roughly. But most things I just learned on the internet, like, for example, my English pretty much just learned from, like, writing and, you know, putting stuff in effectively what's grammarly now, and it tells you what's supposed to be right, and then you're like, oh, I'll remember that for next time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have the same experience with a grammar checker, where the longer I used it, the less I needed it, because for better or for worse, it shaped my writing. Yeah, exactly. I think as those needs come up, you just sort of naturally will be inclined to research like the gaps that you feel. I mean, I still feel this way where it's like, oh, you know, I don't really know as much about history or whatever as I wish I did. Well, now I'm an adult and I wasn't like forced to learn all this like bullshit curriculum. (laughs) I mean, a lot of history, for example, it's not even like a great teaching if you go to like a regular school. I would almost rather be able to source out my own like education on some of these things. So I don't know. No, you're right. A lot of the history taught in this country is very centric on this country and the people that you would consider the victors, which are the white men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the most recent presidential administration, they tried to reinforce that by eliminating any other perspective. And fortunately, that did not pass. But if you're not in the public school system in the first place, you're not going to be subjected to these various, what does this administration want me to learn? It can be all about what you want to learn. Yeah, definitely. You get a very different perspective, I think, when you're allowed to just seek out your own information (laughs) in a way. And like, I feel bad for schools in a lot of ways. I mean, even if, for example, you know, there isn't set laws to set back, you know, the teaching of history or whatever, like, I know there's issues with just like getting up to date books and stuff like that with like things that should be in there now, or were purposefully left out or whatever, and they just like, can't get an updated version, or there isn't an updated version or whatever. (laughs) 
it's like just not set up in the best way anyway. So it seems like all of us are a little bit disadvantaged no matter where you go. But you did mention on your website that being unschooled does not mean you were without teachers. You've had a variety of teachers throughout your life. And I assume you're referring not just to sourcing information and choosing what books to read. Have there been people in your life as well, teachers? Definitely. I think of everybody that I meet as a teacher in like some way, seriously. <laughs> like I think that most people feel that way though. I mean, even if they're not conscious of it, like, you know, every mom of my friend or whatever that gave me some little nugget of life experience like sometimes that kind of just like word of mouth advice or even like history too of like families and your local area or whatever like that ends up being way more relevant to my actual life than anything you can read in a book so when it comes to your art style where have you looked for inspiration Ooh, well I first started by like getting those tracing papers mm-hmm. and I would just trace over Pokemon cards. <laughs> so I was really into that for a while. And um, I mean, I was super into anime. Like some of my first animes were Super Gals, Ranma One Half, Fushigi Yugi, Sailor Moon, of course. Um, and like I said, I have these older sisters, so they would go to conventions in like the 90s and bring home all these old VHS that I would watch. So um, definitely a good portion of like 90s, 80s anime kind of was my first love, essentially. And um, from there, video games, of course, are a big influence. And I mean, just all the kind of art that you see in the world in some way kind of inspires me I think but even like fashion and stuff too like like I said I really like to make stuff that people look at and go like oh my god I wish that were me Hmm. because I get that feeling a lot when I'm like looking at everything in the world (laughs) I'm like wow this is so cool like I wish I was there I wish I was wearing that I wish I looked like that like whatever I think that's the kind of stuff that I'm like "Ooh, this is so cool I want to just like have a hand in making this kind of stuff. That's a big inspiration. So it's like all over the board, I guess is what I'm saying. But what about people in your life? Are there other artists who not just like you watch their YouTube videos or you see their art online, but have you had the opportunity to sit with somebody and learn from them? Yeah. So like I said, um, my older sister, the middle sister has you know, she's an illustrator. Mm. And when I was growing up, she kind of did work that is sort of similar to what I'm doing now, which is funny because she moved on to her birds, of course. But back in the early days, it was a lot more of like these anime fairy girls and stuff like that. So she was definitely early on a big influence on me creating stuff and like, you know, (laughs) being given a pencil and paper and being like, here, entertain yourself for a while by drawing So that was definitely big. And then even my mom, she is also a painter now, but while she was raising the kids and everything, she didn't really focus on it. But now it's kind of interesting because she has a studio space um, down in the River Arts District here in Asheville. And I've gotten to meet a lot of these sort of local art scene, sort of the older generation as well, which I think is kind of good to have sort of like the internet is more young really I feel like right and then sort of having the local group of you know men and women that are probably like mainly 50 to 70 is also kind of interesting that they have their own art market and everything and have been living off it I think that's so inspiring I think it's wonderful when that education transcends the generations I don't just mean in a classroom where you have an older teacher but You're learning what has worked for previous generations at the same time that you're sharing your works amongst your own peers as well. It's this great synergy of not just academic classroom experience, but real world experience as well. Yeah, I feel like when you are really feeling at an equal level to those people, that's also kind of a unique feeling. Like, I don't really think of, you know, that older generation as my teachers more than I am a teacher to them, if that makes sense. Like it just seems like they're my friends. Mm. (laughs) So I appreciate that kind of balance of respect too, where I feel like 
I'm kind of at an equal footing to them. Yeah, they're not there in a mentoring capacity per se, because it's not all about them bequeathing knowledge to you. It's about an exchange of ideas. Yeah, I think that I approach pretty much every relationship I have with that kind of like, I'll teach you and you can teach me just by being near each other. It's going to naturally happen. And what would you say you have to teach other artists? Hmm. I think that I am very passionate about sort of my focus, if that makes sense. Like, like I mentioned earlier, I feel very Capricornian. So I think that this kind of grounding business energy is sometimes helpful to those around me where I'm very good at being motivated about what I'm working on and having a set schedule and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think that just that energy of art, but it's work (laughs) is a real, um, like, what's the word, like advantage to me. I think that just having that kind of focus and calm energy is good. I like that. And I imagine from a technical perspective, maybe this is a bias of mine, the older artists that you're collaborating with may not be as familiar with TikTok or Patreon, and maybe that's something you can teach them. Yeah, they definitely have questions about social media that I do try and bequeath if possible. I've actually made some websites for some people, just like all the older generation that don't understand the technological side of things. Not that they don't all, like some of them are perfectly good at it, but quite a few of them are like, what's TikTok? (laughs) So so yeah, I, I do sometimes say like, hey, I got 2 million engagements on, or no, impressions on Twitter. And they're like, what? Like, how did you do that? Can't you teach me how to do it? So I guess I try to do some of that. Though I think it's a really different world because their whole market is such in like a physical space that I'm still trying to learn. So I guess, yeah, it is this kind of synergy where we both are coming from very different ends of like how we approach things. Yeah, but as you noted, the physical space is rather constrained by this pandemic. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's that's such a huge bummer. Actually, last year, um, I before I moved home, I was working in this art residency, Spruce Art Residency in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And that was such like an enlightening experience to me because we had a lot of people coming in from New York that were like, pretty established artists, but so many of them really worked in physical space. Like they were super excited about uh, just how they were going to arrange the room or like how they were going to fill like a whole environment with their like hand essentially. And that was so different to me to be around compared to like sort of how I feel like I exist very much in a virtual space. I haven't thought about how to translate it into reality for very long. That was such like an amazing thing to see people really transform a room and a space with their art. Is that something you've now done with your basement? (laughs) Um, I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) It can make a difference when you put up things that remind you of what you've accomplished or what you want to accomplish and to see those reminders every day. Yeah, definitely. I have a lot of art from other people around my space. Um, My mom is one of them. I have, oh God, who is this? Frederick Gore. He's an impressionist painter. I have this lovely pink flower painting right by my desk. So (laughs) that kind of stuff is pretty inspiring. But Uh, You mentioned in one of your emails about the career progression of an unschooler. Does that form of education lend itself more to the sort of self-employment that you're currently pursuing? Or does somebody who is unschooled end up being competitive with a more traditionally schooled individual? How does that work? I was thinking about this question, actually, because I was sort of just trying to evaluate how the career paths of my whole homeschool group have gone along. Because in home... (laughs) In Central Florida, there was this whole homeschool group of like probably like seven main kids or something like that. And one of them is also like kind of a famous Twitch guy now. (laughs) His name's Plup. He's like um, a Smash Brothers (laughs) 
<laughs> like famous tournament guy, I guess. So I just think that's kind of interesting that like, you know, quite a few of the people from that core group really ended up doing kind of like internet based stuff as their whole career. But um, I think, yeah, it does lend itself to cultivating your own kind of path forward and not thinking of things in maybe such a traditional way. Like you just naturally are a little bit outside of the box because you've never really been in it. So how you sort of view the path forward might be pretty different from somebody that's kind of used to the system. I don't know. No, it it certainly allows you to think outside the box when you haven't already been living there your whole life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I struggled a lot with going to work and like retail and all that stuff. And partly I do think that is (laughs) kind of in a way disadvantage of unschooling because I was very mentally unprepared for like kind of how horrible it is out there. (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of a weird moment in my history, just because I feel like I went from kind of a blissful ignorance to kind of a shock when I ended up being really in the real world, but kind of the adaptability to step out of that again and kind of find my own way and my own path and creating my days kind of like I used to is very freeing. And I'm glad that I have had like all of those years where I just got to do whatever I wanted. And usually I was pretty motivated about, how I was going to spend my day. And you also mentioned just recently, and also at the top of the show, your retail experience. On your website, you plug that as one of your strengths. How does it come into play in what you do now? Yeah, I mean, customer service is a big part of being kind of a freelancer, I think, because just interacting with people and knowing how to do that in a very professional way is, you know, essential. Uh, not that you have to have had worked retail to like have that skill, but I partially put that there because I think it's kind of humbling. Like a lot of people have been there and they've, they can relate to the experience and how hard it is really. <laughs> like it's way harder than what I do now, just honestly. So I put that there kind of for relatability so that people know like really where I came from and just the specifics of what that means in a way. (laughs) No, I agree. I would hope that you are more inclined to be polite and empathetic to people in retail. If you've been in their shoes, whether it was a, a video game store or a movie theater or clothing or fast food, It's not an easy lot. And especially as you mentioned, it's not exactly financially rewarding either. Yeah, definitely. I mean, (laughs) I I didn't hate it, though. Not all of it. Like, I was working at Publix. That was kind of my last retail job. And I feel like Publix is really known for having employees that are really, like, family-oriented to kind of the company. And I really do think that's true. Like, there was a lot of just camaraderie in that store, which was weird, but that was cool. And I don't know, but yeah, it's a, it's a rough like job to do in general. And I think it does make me much better at like approaching anybody. Like for example, I have a lot of commissioners that have never commissioned anybody before and it can be pretty nerve wracking. (laughs) Like you can tell that they're nervous about like, they feel like they're like bothering you just by asking for a commission and kind of being that presence that says like, Oh no, like, don't worry about it. I've done this a million times. Like we got this, I can lead you through all of it. It's no problem. Just like having done that a bunch in a retail setting where you kind of have to deal with a whole wide range of people that are reacting to you in lots of negative ways sometimes, or they're nervous or whatever. And you have to be the force that kind of, calms them down and makes it a pleasant experience. That's all super essential when you're like the sole <laughs> presence of your business. No, that that's absolutely true. And having worked in retail myself, I can, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. So we have covered so much in the last hour, your art, your, your unschooling, your career aspirations. Actually on that note, where do you think you're headed next? What's your next big project? 
Oh man, I think it's kind of exciting times right now because I I can feel that I'm getting to the point where something really good is going to happen, but I don't even want to say what it is because huh. I don't know yet. I just like can feel that something cool is going to come. So I don't want to like lock myself into anything. Maybe I'll be I don't know, working on some really cool big project or my prince will just keep being beautiful and amazing and people will be awed and want to give me all of their money for them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have a diamond art painting coming out um, sometime this year, hopefully. And maybe that won't even, it might just be one, but it might be more. Um, so I'm just keeping my options open and staying diverse. <laughs> and could you clarify what diamond art is? Yeah, definitely. It's a, uh, it's kind of similar to cross stitching in a way, like conceptually, but essentially it's like a paint by number with little tiny beads. So you get like a big sheet of sticky paper and it has like a design printed on it with all of these little symbols that tell you what color goes where. And then you put these little diamonds on it and you kind of make, make the picture by putting stuff on there. Wow. That sounds like it would be very time intensive. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I've never done one before, but if, if mine comes out, well, of course I have to try it. So, But that's a, a physical art, unlike something you do on your tablet, which would make it harder to reproduce, right? Yeah. So I'm working with a company, Diamond Art Club, and I just reached out to them and was like, hey, you want some of my designs? And surprisingly enough to me, I guess maybe I shouldn't say it's surprising, but <laughs> they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. So now we're working on those and they should be out in the next couple months. Oh, I'm sorry. I originally misunderstood. I thought you were putting the little diamonds onto the sheet, but you're designing the sheet. Right. It's actually a kit that you buy and then you put together. Oh, wow. That's fascinating that you would get that opportunity. Yeah, it's really cool. It's kind of like the puzzle thing in a way. It's like sort of yeah in that vein. Huh. And if I may ask, did you just like reach out to them and say, hey, I want to do this? Or well, what was that connection like? Yeah, literally, exactly. Um, I watch a YouTuber, Bailey J, a lot. I really love her stuff. She's like a big inspiration as far as just like ha like keeping a cool vlog that's casual going. Um, but she has a couple diamond art paintings. And I was like, huh. So I just was poking around their website. And they have like a, you know, an inquiries email for anybody interested in licensing. And I was just like, hey, here's my portfolio. <laughs> and they were like, cool, we'll take it. <laughs> so yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah, you never know what might happen just from you asking. The way I got started as a newspaper columnist years ago was I just went to the local paper and I said, hey, you just printed a review of a Nintendo 64 game two months after it came out. You should be printing reviews within a week of it coming out. Let me do it. <laughs> and, they were, and they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, this was, of course, back when newspapers were a thing. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> I miss the newspaper sometimes. I like the little comics. I used to make my dad read them to me all the time. <laughs> you can still get them online, but it's not the same as folding it out at the breakfast table. This is true. So I do hope that everybody, as you said, will just shower you with money. If they <laughs> want to do that, where can they go online? Um, IVLive.com is my hub for literally everything. You can find my Patreon there, my TikToks, my shop, my, you know, whatever, however you want to shower me with love it's all there and i got one question i noticed you have what appears to be both a store on your website and an etsy store are they like the same thing or is this just two storefronts well etsy has its own kind of advertising so i keep my shop up on etsy because it does bring customers in on its own but i don't really advertise it anymore because pretty much everything i have made cheaper available on my personal site as kind of a incentive to buy from there um so etsy kind of has an upcharge because well etsy itself has an upcharge whenever you sell something there they take a cut but i keep it up because it does bring its own kind of clientele in so I don't know. Seems worth it. So you have had a better experience selling stuff on Wix, is it? Yeah. Um, I've, I mean, I've made more sales over on Etsy, like because like I said, they advertise on their own. But really, when you make those sales, it's it's a sale to the brand of Etsy and not your own brand, which is what ideally you really want to build 
right? Like you want to get a newsletter going of, you know, people that are going to consistently buy from you instead of just like that one stop and shop. Um, If you want to, you know, ideally make a living later on, that's kind of what you need to do. So I'm trying to branch out more into like having my own hosted, you know, Wix site, but it does have its own investment, like to run that shop. It's a couple hundred dollars a year. And for somebody that's like just starting their shop, that's like too much, right? You don't even know if you're going to make a sale usually when you're first starting. So I started off on Etsy and then kind of when that got consistent enough that I was like, I think I can manage my own site and that will be better for my brand. Um, I just added that too. So the trick I'm learning here as a consumer is that when I find an Etsy store I wish to patronize, it's worth taking a moment to Google and finding out if that vendor has their own store. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's good to know. Thank you so much. Well, I look forward to seeing more of your art on ivyalive.com and I hope all our listeners do as well. They can find links to all your stuff on the podcast website at polygamer.net. Ivy Dollamore, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.